Well, good morning, everyone. My name is David McLemore. I'm an elder here at Refuge Church, and I'm just overjoyed, really, to stand here this morning and to preach the word. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. We're taking a few weeks and, and looking at this little book in the Old Testament because we need constant reminders of the faithfulness of God, don't we? When the hope of redemption seems to get dim, God provides in surprising ways. Ruth is a good example of this. Ruth is a a poor, widowed, foreign woman from whom the Savior came. This is a story, the story of Ruth, of what only God can do. It's worth looking at. But the story doesn't start out hopeful, as we saw last week. Chapter 1 is is filled with bitterness, really, from the heart of Naomi. In his novel, This Tender Land, William Kent Kruger tells a story of orphan brothers, Odie and Albert. They're sent to a training school primarily for Native Americans in the 1930s. And the people who are running the school, as these stories often go, are, are hard and mean but they act under the veil of the Bible. In one instance, the headmaster reads from Psalm 23, the same psalm we read at the beginning of this service, and he, he puts himself in the shoes of the shepherd and the children as the sheep. And Odie sees straight through that. But he's not yet given up hope that what God says is actually true. Maybe God does care despite what his hard circumstances might show. There's one night when they're back in the dormitory and Odie and Albert have a conversation as they listen to this lonely cry from one of the children in the darkness. Albert, the older brother, lives in fear of having to leave Odie one day, aging out of the school. And he says to his brother, I'm afraid I'll get taken from you. And who'd look after you then? Maybe God, Odie replied. God? He said it as if I were joking. Maybe it really is like it says in the Bible, I offered. God's a shepherd and we're his flock and he watches over us. For a long while, Albert didn't say anything. I listened to that kid crying in the dark because he felt lost and alone and believed no one cared. Finally, Albert whispered, Listen, Odie, what does a shepherd eat? I didn't know where he was going with that, so I didn't reply. His flock, Albert told me, one by one. I wonder if that's how Naomi felt. She felt the bitterness of God toward her. We saw that last week from chapter 1. She felt consumed by his anger, not comforted by his love. I wonder if in her darkest moments she would actually agree with what Albert had said there. Was the shepherd eating his sheep one by one? I mean, her husband was gone. Her sons were gone. Orpah was gone. Only she and Ruth remained. Was their time coming soon? As we step through the doorway of chapter 2, we enter a new land at harvest time. Bethlehem is beaming with fullness after a long famine. The barley harvest had just begun and empty bellies were filling up. But Naomi's and Ruth's belly still grumbled. Did God hear? Did he care? 
Their circumstances would shout that he didn't. But there are whispers of grace rumbling through the pages of this chapter. God is changing their fortunes. And the thing is, we don't see any miracles like we do in the Exodus or in times of Joshua or even the Judges. Instead, we see this normal course of seemingly normal events. A girl gleaning on the edges of a field. A man coming from the city to check on his work. A harvest in full force. It's an everyday life where God does most of his work. It was true for Naomi and Ruth, and it's true for you and for me. It's true for all of us. The truth is God is always doing, I don't know, 10,000 things in our lives, and we might have visibility into one or two. We might go about our days feeling his absence, but the truth is he's ever-present. We might wonder if he even cares, but he's working right now for our good. We might, uh, we might ask why our lives aren't better than they are. But God is out ahead of us preparing a home for us, an eternal one. Far better than anything we could experience right here, right now, even in our best moments. Following God doesn't always feel like this straight line upward to glory, does it? <laughs> Sometimes our circumstances push us way down low. But the low place is where we find our Savior. He was born in a manger. He had no place to lay his head in his earthly life. He died condemned on a cross, the lowest form of death. But he's called the King of Glory. In God's economy, the low place is the high place. The story of Ruth reaffirms that truth to us. And you know, it actually makes sense that it would be Ruth that reaffirms that truth to us. Jesus came from this lowly woman. This poor outsider is the ancestral mother of the king of glory. So we saw last week that Naomi had complaints in chapter 1. But what God shows Naomi in chapter 2, and through her what he begins to show us, is that behind bitter circumstances is the sweetness of our Savior. So let's read chapter 2 now, and let's pay attention to the sweetness of God and the bitterness of life. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, 
She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is God's word. Did you notice the sweetness in that chapter? God doing things in her life that she didn't expect. The bitterness of chapter 1 begins to be counteracted by the sweetness of chapter 2. Through what appears at first this random set of events, we see the sweetness of God. We see at least three aspects of that sweetness. I want to look at those this morning. First, we see the sweet providence of God. Second, we see the sweet protection of God. And third, we see the sweet provision of God. 
So let's just take those one by one. First, the sweet providence of God. We see this in the first seven verses. We see the truth that nothing happens in our lives that is not a result of God working in our lives. The events of Ruth 2 are proof of that. Nothing's happening in your life right now that isn't coming through the hands of God. Ruth and Naomi came from Moab to Naomi's old home of Bethlehem. You see that in the, in the chapter. Now, Ruth is a Moabite. We're constantly reminded of that throughout the book. It's important. It's an important detail to remember because it helps us understand her position. Moab is infamous in the Old Testament for being an enemy of Israel. Naomi, she's, she's poor, she's husbandless now, she's foodless, she's I don't know, everything else-less. She has a rough time. She's got a tough go, but at least she's a true Israelite. Ruth is a Moabite. So Naomi might have a lot going for her, but Ruth has almost nothing. <laughs> really, nothing. It, I think it's hard for us to even imagine what it might be like to be her. But they have one thing going for them. They have God on their side. Now, they may not feel it in this moment, but it's true. And that makes all the difference. The author wants us to see that God is behind everything that happens in the story, just as he is behind everything that happens in your story. In verse 2, we see Ruth has an idea. She says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Good idea. They're hungry. They need food. But here we already start to see the sweet providence of God. Ruth and Naomi are in the land of Israel. They're not in Moab anymore. They're in Israel now. And that is a place ruled by God's law, which made provision for poor women like them. God's law allowed for poor people and for foreigners to glean from the fields by restricting the landowners from scraping out every possible grain. The edges were for the hungry. Leviticus 19 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. God's law was already caring for them even before they got there. Here is the sweetness of God revealed in His law. When, when setting up Israel's economy, God made provision for the poor. That's amazing. Not only that, but God also commanded His people to protect widows and aliens. Exodus 22, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Deuteronomy 10 says, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 146 says, the Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. God cares about people like Naomi and Ruth. And Ruth takes a, a step of faith knowing this is God's land she's in. And this is God's field she's going to. And if there is a godly man running it, she will find food. 
I, I just want to linger over this a minute. Because it just seems so normal, doesn't it? But it's not. God is doing something here. There was no one less worthy of care from an economic, social, political, or otherwise standpoint than an aging widow and her foreign, also widowed, daughter-in-law. They could be nothing but a burden on a society. But God cares about them. God cares about those whom no one else has any reason to care about. He, this is the, the, the mighty heart of God. We're getting insight into Him. Naomi and Ruth deserved, from a social standpoint, nothing. They had no political power, no social power. But God was not too busy to care for them. He was not too great to notice them. His eye was upon them. He knew their comings and their goings. He saw all of Naomi's bitterness that we saw in chapter 1 toward him. And yet he loved her anyway. He knew Ruth was a Moabite. Yet she found a place in God's heart. Here's the implication. If you feel low and overlooked as Ruth and Naomi felt, God is not too great to notice you. In fact, He's too great not to. God is not too busy to care for you. He's doing it already, even if you can't yet feel it or see it. God is not too distant to know the details of your life. What you're thinking this very moment, He knows it all down to the number of hairs on your head. He feels every stomach grumble. He hears every sigh of desperation. He knows every kind of suffering and trial. And he cares. And one way God cares is through his providence. What is God's providence? We often, I think, think of it in terms of the sovereignty, but it's a bit different. The the Bible says our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. God has the right and the power to control all things. That's part of what makes Him God. But that's different from His providence. Providence is the use of His sovereignty for the specific purpose of caring for this world of caring for you, for His creation. He uses His sovereignty for His wise purposes. One definition I found put it this way, the providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for His creation. That's God's providence. And God's providence is all over this book. It's all over this chapter. And I want to hone in on one phrase first, and then I want to kind of step back and examine a a larger view. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, the author says, So she, that is Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I wonder if you noticed a phrase in the middle of that sentence. She happened to come. 
how many things in our life just happen to happen? The Hebrew literally says she chanced to chance, or her chance chanced. She happened to come upon the field of Boaz. What a coincidence, right? Of all the places she could have gone. Here is a widowed foreigner who just so happens to come to the part of this big field owned by someone who understands not just God's law, but the heart of God's law, what he intends. And he knows how to care for someone like her. The author intends for us to see this, to see the irony of this providence. Ruth comes to the one part of field of the field in all of Israel where she could find exactly the help that she needed. The protection that she needed, the provision that she needed. This is the sweetness of God. God's working behind the scenes to bring about his purposes. There's nothing ultimately that's left to, to, to randomness or to chance. There's only the providence of God. And you and me and Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are firmly in it because God is sovereign. So we zoom out a bit and we see the providence of God laying all over these verses, don't we? Ruth not only came to the one part of the field most accepting of her, but that field was also owned by a certain man. Could have been any man, but it was a certain kind of man. Look again at verse 1. Boaz was a relative of Naomi's husband. We find out later that means he's one of their redeemers. And we'll look more at that in the future because it becomes very important in chapters 3 and 4. But for now, it's enough to know that that means that Boaz can help pull Ruth and Naomi out of their plight by redeeming them, by marrying Ruth and redeeming Elimelech's old land. God made provision for that in the law as well. This is all the more remarkable because when Ruth told Naomi she was going to glean, Naomi didn't offer any direction, did she? She just said, okay, go. But she seems to know who Boaz is when Ruth gets home. Could she not have told her, go to the the field of Boaz? But she didn't say anything. If God is not in this, how did Ruth get to that part of the field under the care of this man? And we see how Boaz is introduced in verse 1, which is also important. Anytime anyone is introduced, pay attention to the details. It says a lot. He's called a worthy man. Other translations of that phrase are a man of standing, a man of valor. And my favorite, because of who comes from Boaz and Ruth, King David, A mighty man. Boaz is not just some nice guy. He's a God-loving, spirit-empowered, redeemer-producing, kind-hearted man of standing, valor, and might who just so happens to come to the field while Ruth is there gleaning. (laughs) Look at verse 4. And behold, the author wants us to see the providence here. Behold. Boaz came from Bethlehem. Notice, notice how Boaz even greets his servants. The Lord be with you. I'll confess, I've not walked into the office and said to those that work for me, the Lord be with you. But Boaz did. 
Apparently, Boaz's faith wasn't a private affair. He took his Christianity into the office with him. And then, not only is it in what he speaks, but it's in in what he notices. He came to check on the work, but what does he notice? Where is his attention drawn to? Ruth. He, Boaz, the owner of the field, noticed Ruth an unnoticeable. And he was impressed with her. The servant in charge of the reapers told Boaz about her. They, they told, her, told him how she took the initiative to care for Naomi. She came and humbly asked to glean. And she worked all day really hard with just a very short rest. In a way, you know, and in fact, in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, there's, Ruth is positioned differently than it is in our Bible. It actually comes after, it's part of the wisdom literature, often come, is found after the book of Proverbs, right after Proverbs 31. Does Ruth not meet the qualifications of a Proverbs 31 woman? She does. We see that here. And Boaz took notice. Ruth hoped to find someone kind enough to let her glean, but in God's sweet providence, she found a future husband who would redeem Naomi's house. It's not a bad day's work, is it? (laughs) It's not bad for a spur-of-the-moment idea in the morning. I'm going to go glean. Here's the point. Where you go and what you do is not left to mere chance. It is the result of the sweet providence of God. It might not always feel sweet at first. We know that, don't we? Did it to Naomi and Ruth as they set out towards Bethlehem? No. No. But it is ultimately leading to something glorious. It was for Ruth. It was for Naomi. It was for Boaz. And if you love God, it is for you too. Now that we've seen the sweet providence of God, let's look at the sweet protection of God. We see this in verses 8 through 13. Not only did God providentially lead Ruth to a field, but he also led her to a kind protector. Notice how Boaz just, he jumped into the relationship with Ruth in verses 8 and 9. He knew who she was. His workers had just told him. And he knew how vulnerable she was. And what is his response? He doesn't sit back and wait. He doesn't let things play out before he acted. He took the initiative to help. He commanded her not to leave his field for another. He gave her the right to stay close to his young woman. He gave her permission to go after his servants who were reaping, getting the best of what's left over. And he charged his men not to touch her. When she was thirsty, she could come to his wells and drink. He built fences around her to ensure her safety in a world that was not naturally safe, especially for someone like her. We could learn from Boaz here. Boaz used all that he had for Ruth's protection. He left nothing out. 
The sweet providence of God is taking form in the sweet protection that he offers through Boaz. And what is Ruth's response to this? We see it in verse 10. It's humble amazement, isn't it? She falls on her face and bowed to the ground in astonishment that Boaz would do this for her. She couldn't believe it. She wasn't expecting someone to do this. She was floored. Everything in her life indicated just a continual struggle for survival. She didn't leave Moab with Naomi because she saw a better life in Bethlehem. It was actually guaranteed to be harder for her when she got there. But she went anyway. She could not possibly have had any great expectations. So when Boaz noticed her and cared for her and invited her inside of his circle, she couldn't believe it. She was floored. She knew who she was. And Boaz knew who she was. And to Boaz, she was impressive. Boaz answered her question, why? Why me? In verse 11. Why am I doing this? Because I heard all about what you did for your mother-in-law. I know you left your father and your mother and your native land and, and came to these people that you don't know. Not because you were in search of a better life, but because you had steadfast love for Naomi. You were unwilling to let Naomi go it alone. And because he saw that, Boaz was now unwilling to let Ruth go it alone. But there was something else that Boaz saw that impressed him more than all the rest of that. He saw Ruth's faith. Of all the places that she could have gone and all the gods that she could have worshipped, she came to Israel and to the God of Israel. She took refuge under God's wings. And so Boaz prays this, this prayer of protection over her in verse 12. He said, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Remember what Ruth said to Naomi when she vowed to stay with her? Do you remember that in chapter 1? It was not only her love for her friend and her mother-in-law that compelled her. She took Naomi's God as her own. Ultimately, it was God that compelled her. Faith drove Ruth to Bethlehem. Faith drove Ruth to stay with Naomi. Faith drove Ruth to Boaz's field. When her life fell apart... She sought refuge under the wings of the God of Israel by faith. Ruth esteemed God's protection as the only true protection. Though at the time she could probably, just, she could not see possibly how that could turn out. She had no idea if this was going to go okay. Not one clue. But she took the God of Israel as her hope and as her joy. And she went. Therefore, as Boaz said, she was repaid and rewarded, as Boaz puts it. And that's not some kind of justification by works. But it's, it's rather the, the, the blessing of her hope in God's work in her behalf. She trusted God. And God didn't let her down. 
She came under the mighty and safe protective wings of God, and He carried her along. And in a way, she was reaping the harvest of that faith here. Ruth points the way forward for us all. When your life falls apart, as one day it will, God's wings are spread to protect you. Nothing can ultimately harm you there in that safe place. And I want you to hear it right now. Maybe your life is okay, but one day it won't be. And there is a God who cares, who knows, who has wings of protection spread wide. Nothing can ultimately harm you there in that safe place. It doesn't mean that your days won't still be hard. In fact, you might even die. But if you love God, you will not die after you die. You'll live. You'll be resurrected. You will find the wings of God are the only true shelter that exists in all of this world. Come under the wings of God and you will live. You will find safety. You will be okay. You will find protection from all that scares you out in the world. You will find a refuge for your soul, a safe place for your life, a shelter from the storm. Why? Why is that safety there? Because one like Boaz is there. Able to save. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, He looked over it and said, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. Jesus is not the holdout. The only requirement for the sweet protection of his wings is the willingness to go under them. That's all he's asking of us. So when you're tired and needy and weak and wounded, when life gets so hard you can't see the way forward, draw near to God and Christ. Go under his wings. How will he respond if you do that? Will he shame you? You can't make it in this world. Will he guilt trip you? Why don't you come sooner? How will he respond? He'll pull you in tight. So tight, you might even hear his heartbeat. Finding refuge under God's wings might mean you can't see much else around you. He might hug you that tight. But you can trust Him. Perhaps your hard circumstances are really for this reason only. To be pulled closer to the heart of Christ. 
Have you ever had those moments? You, you sense God is carrying you somewhere, but you can't see the path. And when you arrive, you don't even know why you're there. How'd that turn out for you? Hiding under the wings of God might feel pretty dark. But there is no brighter place to be. You can trust Him. Now there's one more thing to see in this chapter. The sweet provision of God. Verses 14 through 23. Ruth, the widowed Moabite, who left her homeland with an empty stomach, now finds a fullness that she could have never imagined. Boaz not only gave her permission to glean from her field and to protect her as she does, but he also he, he filled her to the brim with food, both then and later. He invited her to eat bread and dip it in the wine. I mean, how long do you think it had been since she had tasted something that great? She sat beside the reapers among Boaz's people. Not behind them. Beside them. He elevated and invited her inside of his inner circle. He passed the roasted grain to her. He passed it to her. She ate from his hand until she was satisfied. And just like the apostles of Jesus after the feeding of the multitudes, there were some left over. She was given permission to get up and glean again, now with a full belly, more strength than before. And he told his men to let her take not only the crumbs, but the sheaves. And he pulled some out from the bundles that they had already reaped and left it on the ground for her to gather up. Boaz provided abundantly for this dear woman. This is God's sweet provision through his servant Boaz. This is a vision of the kind of fullness that God himself offers all who come to him. When your life falls apart, there is a field you can go to with an owner who will care for you. There's a God who owns all of this world, who has a man who came to this world to find us poor outsiders reaching for crumbs on the ground. He sees us. He knows us. He invites us to his table. He feeds us from his hand. More than that, from his very body, which was broken for us to atone for our sins. He lifts us up to an honorable place with him. His eye is on the one no one else notices. His heart is big enough for all of our needs. His field is big enough for all our hunger. His wings are wide enough for all who need refuge. His house is big enough for all who need a room. 
He is a redeemer, not only of our earthly lives, but of our eternal souls. He is a complete Savior with complete love and care, with sweet providence, protection, and provision that never ends, that never fades, that never fails, that never, ever runs out. You are not forsaken. You are loved. So what happened to Ruth that day is a picture of what happens to all who come to Christ. He lifts us up. He cares. He provides. His eye is upon you right now and tomorrow and the next day and every moment of your life. Everything in your life is leading you to a place of glory and fullness and redemption in Him. And maybe we got to wait a while. Won't it be worth it? We can have everything we want right now, or we can have everything God offers out ahead. Let's take what He's got. Remember what Odie said to Albert? I think he was right. It really is like it says in the Bible. God's a shepherd and we're his flock and he watches over us. Isn't Ruth proof? Isn't your life proof? If you don't believe that yet, I actually understand. I would just say, why not take a chance on God? These stories aren't rare. They're commonplace in the kingdom of God. He can prove himself to you. When your belly starts to rumble, when, when, when the pain just doesn't seem to end, when the tears won't dry, when the land is barren and you see no rain on the horizon, when despair is a constant friend, when almost no one else is left to care for you, when life feels bitter, wait for the sweetness to come. Wait for the sweetness of God. Jesus will pull you tight under his wings. He will be your redeemer. He will shepherd you and watch over you and you will eat from his table. And you'll never have to leave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that what you did in Ruth's life is not a one-off. That's what you do for us all. All who come to you. Lord, let us rejoice in this. Let us see it and taste it. Let us come with all our need to you who can provide. And Lord, if our lives are bitter, give us the patience to wait for the sweetness. Let us come to you now and taste it. We don't have to wait. Lord, you are good and you do good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.